Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. I have my guest uh, from BlueFrontiers.com. His name is Randy Henkin. Uh, he's a director. Randy, how are you doing? I'm good, Richard. Thank you for hosting me today. Yeah, no problem. So uh, can you give listeners just a quick background on you personally and then tell us what Blue Frontiers is about? Sure. Well, um, you know, my, my background is I've been fortunate enough to always find myself in uh, fields and positions and jobs that are unusual and pushing the envelope a bit. And for the past seven years, I've been working with the Seasteading Institute. So if you haven't heard that word before, you have to think homesteading, but homesteading on the sea. And it's a, uh, a nonprofit think tank that's been promoting uh, human habitations at sea where uh, we can explore new ways of living together, including having new governments and all the other um, things that would fall underneath that category in terms of having a sustainable development that is safe and comfortable out at sea. Blue Frontiers is our new company that we started about a year ago um, after the CSAN Institute signed a historic agreement with the government of French Polynesia. At the CSAN Institute, we were a nonprofit think tank and we um, do all of our work with, with donations. And now that we are trying to build the very first seastead, which we know will cost uh, a considerable amount of money, we uh, understand that that needs to be done under a vehicle where people can expect some kind of return on their investment rather than just donation, which is why we launched Blue Frontiers. And I am one of uh, five co-founders there. We got a team of uh, 15 paid staff and nearly 100 uh, professionals. Uh, working on the project, we hope to launch um, in French Polynesia in the you know by the end of the decade, and we're also expanding our operations so that we can bring seasteads elsewhere around the globe. So, what's the why why make a seastead? What's uh, what's so good about it? Is it just is it a collection of floating? I mean, it's not pontoons or anything, but is it like a, a man-made island, or is it a bunch of ships or a gigantic ship? that everyone lives on, and what's the purpose? Great question, and, and this is one of the downsides of the podcast and not a, a, a video um, trying to get your listeners to imagine what a seastead could look like. Um, a seastead technically could be any of those things, you know, anything that floats that somebody lives on um, and uh, they make it a permanent dwelling at sea uh, could be a seastead, and uh, we've definitely considered versions that are 
basically ships and other versions that are basically oil rigs. What we want to do in our first iteration is uh, build something that's more like a barge. Uh, and these barge-like platforms that, you know, sometimes we call them floating islands, um, sometimes we call them sea beds, um, probably will be built with a type of concrete uh, that can last for hundreds of years in the seawater. Uh, there's concrete that we've uh, discovered is what Roman concrete is. And then we would have to use um, you know, some high-grade marine uh, stainless steel or some composite materials to hold that concrete together so it doesn't rust out. But our goal is, uh, as opposed to a ship or an oil rig, we don't want to have to pull it out of the water every five or 20 years to have it repaired. We want it to be able to sit out there and be a permanent settlement. Um, it's probably a lot of people will hear me say that. They don't understand that concrete can float. It's just a matter of displacement. There are lots of large floating concrete structures in the world already. Um, and uh, and then on top of these, we would be building residents and businesses and houses. And we also are looking to expand under the water so that uh, I always imagine having my bedroom be underwater with a nice plexiglass window uh, into, uh, you know, the waterway and I get to, I get to be the aquarium and the fish will come by and look at me. Why why build at sea though? I mean, the possibility of storms, you could have gigantic storms and I mean what's the rom- romance of building at sea or is there a more practical There there are more practical reasons. Uh and, and practically we would station our floating islands, our seasteads in places that are unlikely to have really bad storms. Uh and there's many of them. Uh, particularly our first project is designed to be within a a reef break within a lagoon or an atoll or in a bay, so we're not having to deal with you know hurricane-sized waves. Um, but you know most of the planet lives near water. Most of the humans live near water. Uh, we're overcrowded and we're losing our land to rising. So from a practical point of view, the technologies that we're integrating and offering and developing in this project uh, will be needed by uh, by lots of humanity as we try to not become climate refugees uh, and as we want to expand onto the waters in overcrowded situations. Uh, and then from a more philosophical point of view, the general idea is that most um, all land is claimed and it's all claimed by some nation. And it's very difficult to get a nation to change its policy that, at your whim. What we want to do is we want to create what we call sea zones. Uh, think like a a sea zone, a special economic zone, but at sea, where we've negotiated a uh, deal with a host nation where they allow us some substantial set of autonomy within, you know, the bounds of their own constitution or whatever regulatory framework, legal framework they have. And right. in that sea zone, we could explore new ways of governing ourselves. So there's a really high demand uh, all around the world of people, you know, looking for a uh, a better way of living, a better way of governing themselves, and they're tired of the failures of trying to change their own government, uh, or, or worse yet, they're tired of having to live under tyrannical governments. Now, I live in California. It's a pretty darn good country. You know, I don't have a lot to complain about, but uh, I'll tell you the people that do reach out to us and want to be part of the project, um, many of them do. And if we can create what we see as a marketplace of governance uh, by giving people sea zones and seasteads, uh, we can answer a really significant demand in the world 
and, uh, and and we're idealistic. We think we can make this a better place. I thought, um, yeah, I don't know the rules of the sea, but uh, I thought that most governments claim um, part of the sea as their own up until about, what, 12 miles away from their coast in international yeah, you, waters. You are correct. And as I said, we are looking for relationships, uh, like we have this relationship with French Polynesia. And uh, we're, you know, in our early, you know, our first uh, move out to the water, we're not asking to be outside of a host nation. We're asking for a host nation to understand that there's a, a great bit of benefit to them to have us as their neighbor, because otherwise we wouldn't come. And when we do come, we bring with us uh, environmental opportunities, social opportunities, economic opportunities. And uh, in, in exchange for us bringing that, you know, we ask for some modest autonomy. So um, opportunity for us to control um, the, uh, you know, the, the income streams, you know, how, the, you know how, how our purse is spent, opportunities for us to uh, choose how we import and export duties, um, these kind of things. How do, you, uh, how do you anchor your structure so that it doesn't uh, drift into the waters of any particular country or into an area that has storms? You know, how do you keep it stationary? I mean, it's, uh, again, we're just using uh, off-the-shelf technologies. Uh, you got a barge out there. Um, we will, you know, again, we'll be within protected waters, so we're not in the open ocean just floating around, at least for our first projects. And, uh, you know, this generally means the waters aren't too deep, and we can put down a tension line and, uh, you know, basically screw ourselves into the earth and, and, and be fixated there. But the... Sure. The benefit of, of floating, uh, rather than having you know land reclamation or some other, uh, you know, being on land, is that we can also change. So as our neighborhoods grow uh, and, and people want to adjust, um, they can unconnect that that tension line, unconnect that anchor, and haul their uh, their personal home to a different side of town or to a different seaside. Makes sense. Yeah. So you said um, around 2020. And with the government of French Polynesia, are you thinking your first structure may be ready? I think that, uh, yeah, that that's our ambitious goal. It's going to take a little while to build, um, but we hope to be able to, you know, we, we signed our deal in 2017. Uh, we've submitted, um, you know, our side of the uh, the promise to them at this point. We're working on our design engineering. Uh, we're doing our fundraising. Uh, so we should be building by 2020. Um, and either we'll be doing that uh you know, in collaboration with uh, with French Polynesia or one of many other locations that are suitable for our technologies. And what are some of the parameters? You know, how many people do you want it to house? How long do you hope it lasts? Is it going to have its own government? You know, what are some of the features of it? So the, the pilot project is designed to uh, house two to 300 people uh, on multiple platforms. Uh, some of these would be, you know, a single-family residence, while others would be... Um, you know, big community platforms. And um, I forgot the other part of your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I was asking some of the parameters. You know, how many people, you said two or 300. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what's your goal for how long the community will last? And will it become, its, are you going to go for a separate nation status? Or what kind of legal status are you going to go for? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we'd like to see this just be the first of many. We have a, a vision that there will be, a, you know, First one seastead, and then and then dozens, and then thousands. And it'll give people all kinds of opportunities to try different things in different places. 
Um, you know, obviously, whenever we're in somebody's host waters, we will always be subject to their government, and our opportunity will be, you know, some kind of private administration of our sea zone. Um, eventually, when the uh, technologies are uh, perfected and inexpensive enough, and we can manufacture them, uh, it's plausible we could go out into the sea, uh, probably on the equator where you don't have storms, and um, and have cities out at sea that are their own nation. But but that to me is a a 2050 dream. Um, I think we have to get through this first generation of, of sea zones first. Well, one thing that came to mind, you know, getting stuff, I understand you can trade and stuff can be brought to you. A big thing seems to be, what about the problem of waste or littering, people throwing stuff into the into the water? You know, because when you're on the sea, you're connected to the entire world and the entire world's connected to you. So how do you reconcile um, you, you know, some of the inhabitants, let's say, dumping stuff into the into the water and maybe compromising all the world's oceans or all the world's oceans dumping and arriving at your quote-unquote doorstep? Mm-hmm. Well, sadly, that's what we're experiencing right now. Um, you know, the, the oceans are people's dumping grounds. We use them as super highways. We use them as hunting grounds, and we use them to go and drill oil. Um, and, and very rarely, you know, only a small segment of the population um, puts the care into taking care of the ocean. Um, I think most people don't put care into what fish they eat when they go to the market. Um, they don't take into consideration, uh, you know, what happens to that plastic straw they use for their soda. And, uh, you know, we've, you know, those of us who are aware know about the great plastic gyres in the ocean. We think that when people live at sea, they will take better care of it, just like everybody um, tends to, you know, not want to have a garbage dump in their own backyard. So we've put a lot of effort into how we're going to manage the resources on the first pilot project, uh, including um, how we're dealing with our black water and our gray water and how we're collecting rainwater and how we're not spoiling the lagoon around us uh, because of runoff, how we can turn our waste into energy, uh, and how we can reduce what we bring onto the seastead to begin with so that we don't have so much waste. Okay. I mean, do you, what do you think are going to be maybe uh, the top two or three issues that these communities are going to have to deal with? Maybe you mentioned them already. I don't know. Do you think waste will be sure. one of them, or um, what do you think the biggest problems will be? Yeah, I mean, this is it's not – one of the best things is that the technologies all exist already. We just have to integrate them in a way that hasn't been integrated before. Um, so I think that once we launch the first several, uh, it'll become easier to launch the next. You know, just like you know the the, the you know the first cell phone was some giant box that only the you know, very wealthy carried around, and now we all have computers in our pockets. Um, you know, I think our, our first seasteads will will cost more than the second seasteads. There will be more beta testing and things that will break that we'll have to fix over time um, and get ready for the next ones. Um, I think that uh, you know once people come and, and and visit and spend some time with us and you know like maybe not everybody wants to come and be at the the first one permanently but they want to come there for a month at a time as long as we have uh, you know a, a, the sufficient comforts that we're you know used to uh, you know communications uh, food um, you know that we're in nice places I think that people will find this to be a very attractive lifestyle and. We're only looking for, we don't need everybody to adopt it. Uh, 
eventually I think lots of people will adopt it as it becomes a, you know, a, a better opportunity or a better option than existing opportunities. But um, in the, in the, you know, as I said, the first pilot project, two to 300 people, um, you know, if it's a hundred people that live there and another uh, couple hundred that come through a month at a time, uh, doing a more timeshare type engagement with it, um, I think that will be a great success. And then, you know, there will be high demand to make more seasteads in more locations. And then um, do people apply to be on the seastead? Do they have to pay a certain amount of money? You know, how do they get to be one of those two or 300 people that are picked? So, so we're putting together a, a program that will, uh, you know, balance the, uh, um, you know, people's uh, desires with, uh, you know, the needs of the seastead. So there's a, you know, um, you know we, we want to be inclusive as, of as many people as we can. Obviously, costs are a consideration, and and trying to create a space that is, um, you know, inviting and not not ruined by one bad actor. Um, you know, we don't want to in, in close quarters. We don't want to mistakenly uh, invite somebody in who makes it uncomfortable for everybody else. So uh, we get, um, you know, thousands of people writing to us, expressing interest in having some sort of involvement, and uh, you know, these can be really novel. Uh, interesting, you know, engineers working on really high-tech problems to, uh, you know, retired chefs who want to, uh, you know, be the, the cook on the seastead. Um, so, you know, I think like any community, it'll have a large ecosystem um, of people with different talents, different skills, different backgrounds. And, and one of my, you know, more more uh, favorite things about the project, like right now, of the five co-founders, we're from four different nations. Of the, you know, the, the dozen people on staff, so let's, you know, add another three nations to it. And the people that, you know, came to our gathering, we're up to 17 nations. We have different languages being spoken, different, um, you know, we're, we're all coalescing around an idea. We're not coalescing around the, the tribe that we happen to have been born into. Um, right. And I think that that creates this really interesting dynamic uh, that is a, a first pass on, on, on the way to a better future where people, um, you know, aren't, aren't uh, building fences to, to say I'm different from you. Okay, very good. So what's the best way for uh, interested people to contact you to find out if they could apply to ask questions, to become a donor, you know, et cetera? How do they get in touch? Sure. So um, blue-frontiers.com is the place to come and learn about the Blue Frontiers Project. Uh, we are planning a token sale, uh, so that's how people can buy in and participate in the um, in the project in the uh, coming months. That should happen in May, if we hit our target. Um, and and then we are also working on building this online community. We already, as I said, had uh, you know nearly 100 people that have you know give their professional services to work on critical problems for the project, and we're expanding our capacity to work with these kinds of people. So. Uh, yeah, come to blue-frontiers.com, and um, we'll be happy to grow our community with people. Well, very good. Well, Randy, thanks for coming on the podcast, and uh, certainly interesting what you're working on. It'd be very cool to see how it shakes out. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll get to have you come uh, hang out with me and have a drink on a seat someday. That'd be pretty cool. Thank you. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. 
Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.